After a short hiatus, Josh Hacko and Adam Demuth are back for episode 7 of the Precision Microcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. We're talking about Swiss lathes, the new bolt indexer, and its history, and our precision problems. Thanks for tuning in. On our first segment for today's episode, we're going to be talking about a pretty interesting piece of machining history, and that is the Newbold Indexer. The Newbold Indexer is a differential face gear indexer. Uh, Works kind of on a similar principle to a differential screw, if you're familiar with those. And it's considered a basic mechanism, which I believe it's the 28th of... So a basic mechanism is a machine so simple in its format that if you remove any one of its elements, it no longer functions. And pretty much all mechanical devices are derived from one of these basic mechanisms. Uh, those principles are what got this into the Smithsonian, and it's had a pretty interesting uh, ride since then. It's not really been a commercial success and the author has made a very, very interesting blog on Practical Machinist about the journey that this took. Yeah, when you mentioned that we were going to talk about this, uh, you didn't just mention the indexer, you also mentioned RJ. Um, tell me a bit about RJ, because I don't really know too much except for what was on that Practical Machinist post. Uh, well... I see some parallels to myself, not necessarily an in intellect. He's an extremely smart individual, and uh, he's designed something I don't think I'll ever approach. But in terms of just kind of wanting to do his own thing and kind of worked in a small shop by himself all of his life, I definitely see some parallels there. Uh, so RJ is a tool and die maker, and he had a knack for solving problems in his shop and angular alignment was one of those and he wanted to be able to direct read set angles with one arc second resolution Um, so when i say direct read there's a dial like a hand wheel and you crank to that Um, the only other things that get you that kind of accuracy and resolution would be a face gear differential indexer which this is slightly different from uh, like one made by AA gauge or a sign bar now the problem with sign bar is you have to do some math build up a block stack they're very time consuming and the at the time problem with face gear differential indexers where that due to the teeth having to be an integer you could only get them in 5 eighths arc second or one and an eighth arc second. Nothing was on one whole arc second. Wow. So uh, he wanted to solve that problem and make something a lot easier to use, and but just kept on coming up to the problem. So you're familiar with the differential screw, yes? Yes. So basically you have two pitches that are mated in a way that when it moves, the distance it moves is the difference of the pitch. Uh, and that's kind of how this works. So your first gear is 360 teeth, and that sets your degrees of the circle. Now your second gear, it is one 
degree one minute per tooth. And so mm -hmm. when you index, the amount it moves in relation to that first gear set is one minute. Now the problem is one degree, one minute worth of tooth spacing adds up to 354.09836 teeth. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you're aware an odd number of, or a, uh, a decimal amount of teeth is not going to mesh very well. Mm -hmm. And so that was just always the problem. You couldn't do it. And you had to go to five eighths or one and an eighth arc second. And he just had the very simple idea well, what if I get rid of that odd number of tooth, that uh, decimal? And, well, he then found out, well, I actually have to take 60 teeth off in order for it to mesh. But that's exactly what he did. It's a, it's a partial set of teeth. It only goes about five-sixths away around the, the uh. perimeter. And he did the same thing for the seconds hand, and that's how it's able to mesh. And... Uh, that's what makes it a basic mechanism. So, mechanically, it's not that extreme. It's just, it's rather simple and brilliant in how it works. Um, some of the build choices were really interesting. These face gears, he chose to plastic injection mold, which might feel like a cheap thing to do, but <laughs> his, his concept was that the teeth are so small that dust control was going to be very problematic. And so by going to plastic, mm. it will more or less mesh into the plastic versus holding up the, the accuracy. Um, so the resolution on these systems is one arc second, meaning you have 200, or meaning you have 1,296,000 angular positions. Uh, now, in a practical world, it seems like the accuracy is around 10 arc seconds. Um, so, not not one second arc, arc second accurate, but uh, one arc second resolution, meaning it may not be there the first time, but you can kind of adjust it pretty close. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, so that's, that's the mechanism itself, the indexing portion, and he kind of thought he had this multi-million dollar idea. Like, he had assumed it could have as much market value as $50 million. And he, he got to work and trying to put it and license it into as many things as possible. And this is what kind of really grabs my attention. It wasn't necessarily the invention of the device, but all the trouble he had making it commercially successful and basically he looked at everything that needed to measure angles accurately and set angles accurately and thought is there a way we can add my mechanism to that one of which was setting tram on Bridgeport's heads so instead of having that gear and the uh, you, you, you kind of move it with the vernier and get it close on the degrees and then set it with a 10th indicator mm -hmm. he had the idea of incorporating one of these into a Bridgeport head and you just set it to zero and it should come back and be on position um, Bridgeport didn't really go for that and I think it would have been a little clunky personally um, but 
uh, another potential application he thought of was like uh, surveying transits. And so he was he was really trying to find uses for this outside of machining or outside of the tool room machining. Mm-hmm. Um, but that never really took off. And I can't say I blame him. It is pretty specialized. But mm-hmm. even within tool room, he had kind of a hard time getting it taken seriously. Um, and just reading why was interesting. Uh, we take for granted how easy it is to market something these days. Uh, with the internet, and I, I think yeah. back in the '70s, that was a wildly different ball game. And basically, the only way he could sell these is if he went in person to the company and put them up to against sign bars and angle plates, and showed them how fast these were. Mm. And uh, one of the companies he was very successful with was Temkin Research whom he sold 800 of these to. Um, and <laughs> 800? I, these have always kind of been prevalent in my career. Now I understand why. Like, every shop I worked in around Temkin had a lot of these. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things Temkin kind of found the use for them. And everybody who went through there saw how versatile they were and uh, picked one up for themselves. Um so the indexer, you can get it in a variety of ways. One is like on your classic tool room uh, punch grinder configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, like a Harry a or a... Correct. And so you could have an indexer on the back end of one of those for setting uh, spacing for odd number of teeth or odd angled punches which mm-hmm. usually on a Herrig you have 24 positions or something like that um so this this gives you a lot more opportunities than than your typical shot pen indexer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh the other way is what i have which uh it's more or less an angle plate with this indexer on the front of and then it has a slide now on my slide i have a diamond nib and that allows me to dress odd angles on wheels. Oh, right. So I recently used it to dress a 45V onto the end of a wheel because I was grinding a V groove. Right, right, right. Now, most people, like a lot of tool makers I know, they'll just have like a diamond dresser that slides and it's into the base. You have various angles ground, like a 22 and a half, 45, and a 30. And you just kind of set it. Um, this was this was cheap enough on eBay. I, I felt it was worth not making one of those and just buying this. So it's kind of an indulgence, but I've always wanted one. But uh, and then kind of the third use is it just had a shelf on it, and you could use it to set angles. Like say you were inspecting a triangle and you want to know the angular difference between faces. Right. And that use is where it directly competed with like a sidebar. Mm-hmm. But those are the three main uses he could come up with. Um, and uh, yeah, he had some commercial success with certain companies. Um, but is one of those things he had to be able to show them how to use it before they would see the light. Uh, he's never able to sell them via catalog. And... Uh, my industry, he must have visited a lot of shops because I've seen him in every shop I've worked in. Um, they're very popular in this tool and die work. But uh, um, 
you you don't when you talk to other machinists or tool die makers they they're not familiar with them so uh what is interesting at one point he had turned to a very esteemed tool and die shop in our industry to have these made and i come to find out my old boss was working there at the time and part of that project So I kind of got some of the inside scoop as to how certain things were ground on these. And um, the construction on his indexers is quite good. And the, they're, they're probably better than the Herrigs or anything in, in the like mm-hmm. because of the way he does the bearing races. Um, they're quite a bit stronger and it's integral to the spindle housing. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's able to get a, a larger ball in there and a little more stiffness. So, all in all, pretty pretty clever guy. Invented a pretty neat device. Um, but when you read the thread, your heart just kind of breaks because yeah. he made just a lot of poor decisions. Um, he got some money right out of the gate for this. And one of the first things he bought was a Cessna airplane because he was going to be traveling around. <laughs> Having in a lot of meetings, and and you just see a lot of stuff like that. Um, and a lot of trusting yeah. family with large sums of money, and uh, a very cautionary tale and worth reading. Uh, if you Google practical machinist, uh, mother of an invention, um. And RJ Newbold, it it'll certainly come up. We'll put a link in it to our post, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. great, great read. Um, just because he really breaks down his thought process as to how he invented this, and I liked seeing inside uh, an inventor's head. Yeah, it's it's a classic story. Like that's why I resonated with it so much because uh, that story of a frustrated inventor. Um, or maybe a, I guess, misunderstood genius. Um, it's not that uncommon. I think in in every sort of shop you might find one or two these sort of uh, characters with, you know, like a fantastic idea or uh, like a genius thought process or like ex- even ability, like an extraordinary ability, but just no way to make it work. Um and I kept when I was reading through the thread, I kept re- uh, thinking of like um, whenever you played those computer games where you had to create a character and you selected their character traits like strength and agility mm. and all the rest. Um, this guy just had maxed out intelligence and then like nothing else, <laughs> which is really brutal to say. And I don't mean it truly, but. It's one of those, like, imagine if or, like, what if um, moments, yeah. you know? I, I think Charisma might have been lacking, which is interesting because he seemed effective at selling them. But at one point, one of the really cool things about this reading this is he got into pretty much every major American metrology institution. Mm. Uh, Starrett, Weber, Moore, uh, A.A. Gage... Timken, like anybody who was at the height of measuring something at the time, he went in the doors of. 
And at one point, he was demoing this to the Starrett company and made a comment to the president of Starrett how he just made their angular parallels obsolete. Uh, and it wasn't well received. And just... <laughs> oh, um, just, yeah, like certain things like that. It's like, oof. But a, a good cautionary tale to anyone who wants to invent something truly novel is to to read this because you might end up inventing something too novel to be useful um yeah and another parallel to this is the 26th and 27th basic mechanism the rolamite and scrollamite uh invented Mm -hmm. by sandia national laboratories it also is a commercial failure um it's is another almost identical story to this where um really novel mechanism that uh doesn't have a lot of uses outside of uh, one or two purposes yeah there's a there's another story that's that sort of has some parallels and anyone that knows anything about watchmaking um has probably heard it and it's the story of george daniels and his escapement and for those who are listening who don't know what an escapement is it's uh, i guess the um the the part of the watch that determines the accuracy and it, well the, all the parts determine the accuracy but this one is quite instrumental in the long term accuracy and you need uh, a high level of precision and uh anyway long story short george daniels um invented a sort of a novel escapement called the coaxial escapement and like these inventions that we were talking about like the rollermite and scrollermite and the new bold indexer it was probably a little too uh deep down the rabbit hole and uh the, there's a there was a standard a swiss standard called the swiss lever escapement which had populated the watchmaking industry for the last uh, i want to say like 90 years before george daniels rocked up and uh he spent it was his like life's crowning achievement developing this uh, escapement and he spent most of his life trying to convince these um, massive swiss corporations to adopt his escapement and there were truly a lot of benefits from it and the biggest one being that you didn't need to lubricate it Um, and lubrication was a massive thing and is a massive thing for escapements because um, it directly impacts the service interval so his his big claim to fame was that he could reduce the service interval for watches and um, while increasing the accuracy of the timekeeping as well. Uh, But there's so many stories of him rocking up to companies like Rolex and Patek Philippe and there's, you know, other companies out there as well. And they just laugh because why would they change? Or or it's too expensive to implement, which probably isn't the case with the... um, new bolt indexer because of the <laughs> the plastic dividing plates but um it it's it's quite interesting to think about why people don't um i guess jump on these ideas and the i don't know i can't be authoritative on this but i want to say that a big reason is because close enough is good enough and that was definitely the case with the watch industry. A four-year service interval was good enough in comparison to a 10-year service interval. And 
possibly 24 positions on a Harrig or fiddling around with an angle plate uh, or a sign plate is good enough. Um, yeah, it's it's frustrating as someone who really enjoys these sort of precision um, endeavors to see that. But I think it's a reality. It, it really is. I would agree. Uh, and as somebody who now owns one, um, it's mildly quicker than than the alternative. <laughs> this was this was more of a I wanted one because I've always had them around uh, getting into the trade, and I, I mm. just really come to enjoy rereading that blog. Um, mm. But yeah, this is very much so an indulgent purchase. Mm. Um, How did he get? And this is like back harking back to the technical aspect of the actual indexing system how did he manage to get such precision from the plastic plates well well, that's actually one of the interesting things about it is so he had purchased from Moore one of their 1440 dividing heads uh, meaning it has 1440 positions Mm -hmm. and um, that is also a face gear differential indexer um, but that is one that has to be an integer number. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes, yes. And then he did a 60-degree shaped resin bond CBN wheel, and he ground them all on a surface grinder. And um, one of the interesting things about these being plastic and when they injection mold they don't necessarily have to be a precise diameter or flat because the way they assemble, they're pulled flat. Like the, mm-hmm. the molded sections are very, very thin. Mm-hmm. So by doing them as plastic, they kind of conform to the assembly. And so the only thing that you really needed to worry about was angular spacing, which mm-hmm. no matter how these distorted when they came out of the mold, because when you release apart from the mold, it does kind of flex around a little. Yes, yes. And humidity and stuff like that can also affect their size. None of that mattered. It only mattered was the tooth spacing. And that still remains a constant angular spacing. Yeah, right. Uh, independent of how the part swells or pringles or bends and so as long as you pull it flat at assembly it uh it's going to be the same spacing and then there's of course like with a differential set of teeth there's like an averaging of errors so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so what he thought was a very clever and it is a very clever way of getting accuracy with these injection molded teeth um it it worked fabulously It, it does affect people's opinion of this like when you put it together like when you deal with some ultra precise mechanisms and you assemble them like you you can feel the way these parts go together that are very precise you do not get that sensation um Mm. with this thing um it doesn't even snap together it's just you're like stacking (laughs) these three plastic plates up and then tightening them (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so it really doesn't have a quality feel, but it works. It's, you know, mm, pretty mm. accurate. And uh, <laughs> and so that's that's something to keep in mind is if you're going to be selling a multi-thousand dollar system, uh, it should look like it costs multi-thousands of dollars. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I don't expect any Swiss watchmaker would get away with plastic on a watch. Yeah, no, no, well, <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, man. The, the, it does sort of remind me of um, some plastic injection watch parts, uh, plastic injection molded watch parts, and Swatch is very famous for that. And sort of any mm. watch that goes through, like, millions of in, in the volume count, um, the designers probably have thought of it because the molds... Um, you, you you just have to make one accurate mold and obviously inserts you know but the the precision that you can get especially if you can design your way out of the negatives like it seems um uh rj did it's it's a really yes. good process because plastic conforms to a mold really really well um and so these swiss watchmakers they ended up just making some gears uh, out of plastic and uh, <laughs> it's funny they thought they wouldn't last but uh, you have this very weird phenomenon where you have like a, a hardened steel pinion right that's mating with a plastic gear and after 30 years of service the pinion is completely shot and the plastic is perfect <laughs> and uh, the reason why is that as soon as one piece of hardened grit you know, embeds itself embeds. into the plastic. Yeah, you, you know, it's game over. I've seen that with bronze bushings on presses. The bronze bushing will more or less be perfect, and the shaft, which is hardened, is withered away. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's like one of those fundamental design things. Um, I always keep in the back of my head. I haven't really had a chance to explore, you know, uh, differential material hardnesses. In design too much but yeah super interesting wow like this is a pretty insane sort of segment i, I really liked it <laughs> yeah it wasn't so much the history of the indexers uh the history of the failure of the indexer but uh, <laughs> it's kind of kind of grim but i i think anybody who wants to be taken seriously is designing something really ought read that yeah, absolutely. I, I do actually have one more question, which was sure. um, about... Uh, let me get it up here. Um, so he's got... It seems like there's a couple of companies that are left over. There's like like newbold.com, and then you've got mm -hmm. um, uh, imperialnewbold.com. What's the story behind those? So I think in 91... He sold the designs to Imperial Carbide. And they're... So from like Erie, PA to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it's kind of like this carbide corridor. It's called the Carbide Valley. And they're another one of those big shops. Like most of the companies I speak about are on that area. Mm -hmm. And they're another one of those well-known establishments. But... He sold it to them and then licensed them the name. And so they, like the name Newbold, and they still make a couple of his designs and they have rights to the, the actual one arc second resolution dividing mechanism. Right. Uh, and then after his non-compete ran out, he, uh, he started making... 
tool room spindles and indexers without that feature. Uh, they're more similar to like your standard Herrig with with some upgrades. Mm-hmm. So like a Herrig, it's just wherever that shot pin lands, it lands. Whereas he yeah. designed a new indexer where you can you can null or zero out the C-axis rotation, or I guess depends on what orientation you have. But you can you can adjust the angular rota- orientation of the, the work holding, and then set the shot pin, and then it'll divide twenty four times from where you adjusted it. So that's kind of a neat addition to an age old device, but. Um, Mm-hmm. So he's had a, a couple neat designs since then, but yeah, newbold.com is um, it's ran by his wife, and I think she's slowly selling off what's left of his inventory. On this week's machine tool segment, we'll be talking about small diameter lathes, especially uh, sliding head lathes or Swiss machines, as many people know them, or screw machines even. And uh, I guess all of the things and and different facets that surround these very peculiar and niche uh, machines. So fundamentally, I have a lot of exposure because I own one of these machines. And uh, I know a little little bit about how they work and how they run and all the rest. and I feel like there's a lot of things about these machines that the public sort of don't really get exposed to that much. And some of the intricacies and a lot of the, like, I guess, the difficulties in, in, uh, in setting these up and running them. And before we sort of start, I want to give a massive shout out to Danny Rudolph, who has a lot of fantastic content on his Instagram about how these machines work and how they run. And he has uh, three, I believe. Yeah, I think it's two old R04s and one new R04. He has three of these machines that we're going to be talking about. So in this market segment of small diameter Swiss lathes, uh, you really have two main players and sort of like a third, uh, well, hard to call it even a player, but you have... The Citizen R04 and the R01 that they also produce, and the Tornos Swiss Nano 4 and the Swiss Nano 7, which are the, I guess the uh, the four millimeter and seven millimeter variants, and that sort of half player is the Sugami P034, um, and all of its other variants. They make a one millimeter one millimeter machine and a machine with um, a sub spindle and without and so on. And uh, Danny has two of the older version of the R04s and one of the new one. And there's, I guess, a a whole plethora of differences between the new and the old and um, how they improved the design. And he's probably the best to comment on that. So head over to his Instagram if you want to see some content on that. But um, before we start, I guess, going really in depth adam have you ever had any experience with these sorts of machines you're the small machine king but swiss lathes uh superb had a swiss lathe department but they didn't really get any smaller than six millimeter uh there are 20 millimeter bar machines but um the only time i've ever seen one of these is when i visited danny um and uh it was 
it was attractive um, from a floor space standpoint. I think they're really neat, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to you know make parts with them. They're they're very esoteric. Yeah, esoteric is the right word, and uh, that's sort of the market segment they target as well. That there are not that many. Um, types of parts that are that small um i feel like if you bought you know a Haas, what is what's the classic Haas machine like a vf1 or a vf2 i'd say vf2 is probably one you see in most shops yeah if you bought a Haas vf2 you could make like 90 percent of that the parts in that workspace envelope right mm-hmm. um whereas these machines like the R04 and the Swiss Nano, they they target a market segment that's extremely specific that no other machine can do. And they're, they're all birthed out of, um, really out of the watchmaking industry um, from the cam machines that uh, dominated the last like 100 years of, of uh, industrial manufacture of watches. And that's their history. So you, you, you might find components uh in the medical sector like danny specializes in um you'll see like uh uh, surgical needles and implements for um testing uh and then you might go to the electronics industry for like connectors and pins and uh any sort of like small uh contact based measure measurement of um of uh like in probe cards for uh, silicon wafers all those pins are made on swiss machines usually and beyond that obviously the watchmaking sector and then the dental industry sort of brushes that diameter range but it's usually four mil and above like maybe three mil to seven mil so the yeah i guess it's difficult to figure out a place to uh, to start talking about these machines, but what stood out to you when you saw the the R zero fours? How the the lengths they went to to make them compact, uh, and you know, obviously the machine's one thing, but I remember seeing a picture of Danny having his uh, electrical cabinet open, and mm. the like drive cards and stuff were were on like a separate swing out door so they could like double decker stack this cabinet and mm-hmm. really get it as compact as possible in the electronics enclosure. And I've not seen that level of uh, space savings before. And that really impressed me. Um, I feel like the actual machine could almost be bench top. It just has, you know, like the coolant mm-hmm. tank and chip tank under, but the, but the, the frame of it is pretty pretty small yeah absolutely and you'll you'll see that a lot of the 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 size like restrictions of the machine are driven by the factories that have you know a hundred in a room um like you hear those stories about foxconn and how they have uh, like thousands of robo drills in a room the same is actually true about the swiss machines too um they have many many machines in one place and if you look on like the swiss nano brochure a surprising amount of literature is devoted to how these machines can be packaged um 
it's almost like <laughs> if you're only buying one machine, you're doing something wrong. You have to buy like six at a time because all the drawings have, all the floor plan, floor plan have six machines in them. Yeah, Tornos has a picture on their website that caught my eye. And I think it's a like an eight by 10 meter square and they have 20, 20 of these packed in. And uh, it's, that's just a huge amount of floor space utilization back to front side to side and a lot of it does come from what you said that it's pretty much a benchtop machine and um i've looked at the r04 under its you know way covers a couple of times doing some like preventative maintenance and all the rest and it's surprising it's really really surprising like the the main kinematic structure of the machine is probably half a meter by 300 mil by uh a half meter it's not big at all and the rest comes from what you said you said the coolant tank the electronic cabinet the control itself and then obviously the bar feeder and all the kind of equipment to support the bar feeder um before we get act- actually yeah before we get into the bar feeder might be worth explaining what sets these machines apart from a standard lathe and then also larger diameter uh, Swiss lathes. So, in the name, a sliding headstock lathe indicates that the headstock, the z-axis of the lathe, is moving. It's not like a, a, f- a fixed conventional headstock lathe. It's on a set of rails that uh, uh, give the z-axis travel for the part. And the other big uh, design point of a sliding headstock machine is the guide bushing. So this bar is clamped in the uh, the headstock in the spindle and is moving in the z-axis through a fixed guide bushing. Sometimes it's a rotating guide bushing, but it's fixed in the z-axis. And what that provides is a steady rest, if you can imagine it that way, uh, right at the point of uh, cutting contact, or at least you know one millimeter away. And so you can end up turning these very very long parts. Uh, you know, like 20D or 30D or even longer uh, successfully because always you, you always have support at the cutting point. So the whole machine structure is, I guess, accommodating that design feature. You've got this guide bushing and then the platen or sometimes two platens or even three with some designs in larger machines Um is moving just in one plane, the XY plane. It doesn't move in Z, or sometimes it does move, but it's on a you know separate, like a turret, for example, in, in like the M series for Citizen. Uh, and then the last part of the kinematic structure is the subspindle. So not every uh, Swiss machine has a subspindle, and a lot of like a an outstanding majority of the CAM machines that these machines were derived from did not have subspindles. They just relied on a very sharp cutoff blade and uh, part collection through either vacuum or coolant flow. Um, and you have to think, yeah, these parts are so small that just the flow of the coolant can guide where they drop off, you know. Um, but more recently, uh, especially with the increasing complexity of the parts, especially with backside turning, backside operations, you have these subspindles. And the subspindles 
uh, very interesting, and especially clear in the Swiss Nano, they're more or less floating. They have very low um, kinematic uh, structure around them. And that's something that always stood out to me. It's like with the, it's so apparent with the Swiss Nano. So I urge you to have a look at the machine. Um, the Z axis of the sub spindle on the Swiss Nano is mounted, uh, uh, I guess, horizontally. It's it's not um, the spindle isn't sitting on the axis rails. It's kind of hanging off it, which is one <laughs> interesting design choice. And then secondly, it's all cantilevered out of the base of the machine. Um, and I guess I'm making this point really clear because the amount of cutting force when you're turning these really small parts is just so so low. And the uh, the especially on the subspindle, the amount of operations that happen on the subspindle are very low as well. Usually, the subspindle is there just to pick off the part. It's just there to support during part off. Maybe add a chamfer or something, you know, like a little spot drill or whatever, and then just place the part in a collection chute. So, all things considered, very unique machines. Um, uh, kinematically and then you have the whole issue with the bar feeder and the idea behind like I guess the main concept behind these Swiss machines is unattended production and very high volumes so a bar feeder is integral like you can't really I guess you can buy it without a bar feeder but it's a bit pointless uh, the bar feeders have to support more or less spaghetti like these bars have very little um, uh, rigidity in and of themselves. They, uh, it's, yeah, it's like a spaghetti noodle, three me- three millimeters in diameter and three meters in length, uh, and down to you know half a millimeter in diameter and three meters in length. You know, it's just a, it's just nothing. And the way they work is also fascinating. They have, um, it's usually hydrostatic. So they pump a channel full of oil um, in which the bar is uh, sliding and and spinning in. And the faster the bar spins, the more support it gets because of the um, hydrodynamic and hydrostatic effects of the, uh, the, the the bar support. So all of these ideas came from... Switzerland, but the Japanese, in my opinion, sort of perfected it. And and I say this because I own a Japanese machine. <laughs> I'm sure that if I owned a Swiss Nano, I would be saying the opposite. But in my opinion, the Japanese mastered the art of making these machines. When are the Japanese going to flex on the Swiss and just start marking them as Japanese machines? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Because from what I understand... Tornos is even having some built in Taiwan now, aren't they? Yeah, actually, I, oh, I I can't really comment, but I think a lot of their machines are built uh, overseas. Um, and if if you do compare the quality of machines in in comparison to where they're built, I'd like to say the Japanese machines are, I'd say, of a slightly higher standard than those made in Taiwan could be wrong a lot of it comes down to like qc and and uh, procedural implementation of of um, quality control and things like that but 
in many ways, the Japanese have a, a nice, nicely, you know, perfected process of building a machine. Yeah, I just, I do find that funny. It seems like uh, the vast majority of brands and Swiss lathes built are nowhere near Switzerland. Yeah, and you have um, like Hanwha. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. They make like a budget Swiss lathe. Um, and you see that in a lot of shops that, you know, don't re- require tight tolerance parts. You know, they're making like a, like a fitting for uh, like an air hose. And they don't need to spend $300,000 plus on a Tornos. So they buy like a $90,000 Hanwha that lasts as long as it lasts. It doesn't need to last longer than 10 years. Um, and they just run it into the ground, making these fairly good parts. Um, and so it, I'd hazard to guess that the longer this industry segment goes on for, the more it's going to be populated with these cheaper alternatives for Swiss machines. Um, because all they're buying the machine for is just for a rot- like a like a guide bushing. That's They just need the... Um, the speed and the the um, I guess volume capability of of any standard lathe, but with the the fixed point rigidity during the cutting process, that's really what they're you know looking for. So another thing uh, about these machines is the thermal management, or really the lack thereof. For my Citizen R04, there's one spindle chiller, and it doesn't even do that great of a job it lets the spindle warm out warm up to like uh maybe 30 degrees or something like that and keeps it there um and i find that surprising because thermal management is such a uh, uh a sticking point for a lot of these high precision machine tool manufacturers that's a big marketing point and big uh differentiating factor uh between them and their competition for example so when I saw the lack of thermal comp, uh, thermal management and thermal compensation on these machines, um, I was quite surprised. And the reason is quite obvious, actually, is that these machines reach a thermal plateau after long periods of running um, or really short periods of running the exact same part. Uh, but they level out uh, and don't really grow anymore. So my R04 levels out after... Uh, like I want to say 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And um, I find that after that, you're just tweaking tool wear rather than uh, machine growth in the compensation tables. So the the way the machine tool builders think about these sort of problems is very different. Uh, like a, a VMC has to be accurate over 400 millimeters, or let's say, um, and so a one degree change uh, extrapolates to a much higher degree of accuracy or inaccuracy. Whereas a Swiss lathe, like the main axis travel for the Z axis is like 100 millimeters on my R04, maybe even less. Um, and the X axis and Y axis are all under 100 millimeters. Uh, so it, your degree of inaccuracy due to temperature changes is really small. It's really, really small. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I feel like I'm talking way too much, Adam. Sorry. 
Well, no, I, I I do understand what you mean about small machines being less impacted by temperature change. I see that with the Mori. Um, it's very well thermally managed, but uh, I, I don't know that it matters all that much for something that has uh, 150 millimeters of travel. Like, you know, if it gets five degrees mm. warmer, is it really gonna? For you know, unless I'm really chasing the highest of tolerance, I don't feel like it would hurt me that much. Um, but I certainly take advantage of the thermal characteristics it has, though. So, but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. now it's interesting that they don't put as big as emphasis on that. So, looking at the the Swiss Nano offering, uh, one thing that caught my eye is you can choose your color. And <laughs> so there's a shop near me, and they're a medical shop, and they have a lot of Willemans and the Swiss Nanos, and they get them in lime green, and it looks oh wow horrendous. But uh, so my question to you is, if you had to get a Swiss Nano, what color? Oh, uh, tough to say. I think red. I kind of like red. Go with the Kern. My Shoblin's red. Yeah, the Kern's red as well. But um. All the walls in my shop are sort of gray. So if I got gray, it would just blend in. <laughs> um, mm. And gray really would be my first choice if it wasn't for that. Uh, and it's funny. Like, <laughs> you hear this as a joke every now and then when you go to like a trade fair or something and, the, you know, the salespeople complain. It's like, oh, you know, the people that buy these machines, all they care about at the end of the day is just the color. But it's true. Sometimes it matters. Sometimes, like, if you've got a lime green machine, I feel like you've got some issues, you know. <laughs> You're going to be seeing that thing. Yuck. I sat in on a machine meeting, and it was a two-hour-long meeting, and an hour was on color. <laughs> they weren't lying. Like, the customer had very, very specific, like, route colors for... For primary, like, you know, the bulk of the machine needs to be this blue. But then we, wow. like, trimmed to be this color. And it was, like, a charcoal. And then, like, I had to go through the CAD model. And they had to select what pieces they wanted blue, what pieces they wanted charcoal. <laughs> I'm like, this is... <laughs> it was rough. Crazy. So, color is important. But back to the, the Tornos. Um, one thing caught my eye on that uh, Swiss Nano frame. Mm-hmm. They've taken that that machine frame and they've built what's called a bar miller. Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially, you know, the same kinematic layout, but it doesn't turn. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a fourth axis, but uh, it doesn't have a turning function. Yes. So you'd, you'd basically stick up to 16 millimeter bar in it and use the live tools and you could mill these pretty complex parts and then instead of a sub-spindle, it has a small centering vise, which can grab the finished milled part and pick it off. And that really caught my eye as somebody who makes high volumes of tiny, tiny little pocket knife parts. Um, mm-hmm. Being able to load something up like that, that's the first bar-fed solution for small non-round or non-from-round parts that I've seen. Um, like I, I don't see why you couldn't put square or rectangular stock into that system. Well, yeah. If you had the appropriate call it. Yeah. They, um, uh, and this is, I guess, a, like a industry tale. So I'm not exactly sure 
how true it is. But um, from what I understand, the machine concept was developed for Rolex uh, for milling the, the hour indices for the dials they produce. And so it's, if you look at like a Rolex dial, you'll see um, on every hour, there's like a little marker and that marker is made from gold. And so what they traditionally did was you start off with a rectangular bar and you feed it through a um, like a VMC with a special clamping system and it saws off a little bit and then you know manipulates it somehow and can go through like three different operations and there's a lot of issues with that sort of process but they made it work and sometimes you can stamp them out if you're you know if the geometry favors it um, but they commissioned the production of these machines these bar fed milling machines for that component and they started off with square bar and uh, these collets they're just square collets for the main spindle if you can really like the clamping spindle and um, the cool thing about doing that uh, product in this process is that uh, you have a very small machining volume and you can easily wash down the whole area. So if you have an oil gun, you can just wash down the entire area and reclaim all of the chips. And so when you're milling gold, um, that becomes a massive consideration um, to the point where uh, they... <laughs> there's a lot of stories about Rolex and it can get a bit kooky. Um, do, do the chip bins have locks? Yeah, well, even worse. So they weigh your chips at the end of the day and they have a quota that you have to meet mm. so you mill all the gold and blah 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 and you're personally responsible for this machine and if you come i've been in that scenario professionally <laughs> wow milling gold no it was a margining steel and this is around the time iran was you know making precise tubes out of margining steel and so the government wanted to really track all of that alloy in the United States. And so we were given X amount of pounds. They knew the product weight and we had to send out the corresponding amount of chips back to the customer. Wow. That's crazy. And what was really was terrible. It was like very stringy chips. Uh, yeah. So like we were using these one yard hoppers and you know, it might weigh like, 200 pounds <laughs> you know like a meter cube and but anyway back to back to the small watch lace yeah. um yeah the only kind of story i have heard with rolex specifically was that um there was one employee that and look again don't quote me on this but this is the tale that you hear when you go to switzerland is that one employee was um uh siphoning off uh gold within the quota amount so they obviously allow a small amount to be kind of left over and he was taking that amount plus a little bit more and it was just you know he convinced everyone that he couldn't get any more so after years and years of working there he ended up stealing a lot of gold and they all sort of knew the upper management knew that he um he was stealing but they couldn't pin it on him so he left and the gold stopped you know like the gold stealing stopped and their levels kind of like went up a little bit and they said, oh, wow, okay, wouldn't it be great if we could really pin it on him? So they invited him back to work there 
And uh, on the same process, they said like, hey, we, you know, we're short staffed. We really need your expertise, your help. And uh, the gold stealing started to happen again. And they had enough evidence to lock him up. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, again, I'm not sure if it's a true story, but these sort of machines made it a little bit easier for large companies to, I guess, track their chip management for those um, for those really small uh, watch parts that were made from precious materials. In uh, New York City's Diamond District, there is a guy who mines the cracks in the sidewalks. No. Yeah, and like is very successful with it. Wow. Um, just every day he goes down there and like vacuums the cracks and captures, and he has like a a uh, what's the the sifting pan, but yeah. automatic. Yeah. And uh, he separates gold out of it, and he's he's found small diamonds before, and because I mean, just things get stuck to your clothes when you're doing that sort of work. Oh yeah. So I've always found that interesting, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he's on his hands and knees like vacuuming the sidewalk cracks, <laughs> and that's what he does for a living. Someone should tell him that diamonds aren't worth anything. <laughs> no, uh, no, but he does get a lot of gold dust. So, well, that's a neat look at small small lathes um kind of a foreign world to me but i i do appreciate the small machinery all right this next segment is our reoccurring precision problem segment uh so let's get into it this week I had some rings for a local steel slitting company that makes sheet metal siding for buildings, uh, kind of like you'd see on agriculture or industrial buildings. But uh, the ring isn't actually doing the slitting. It is a, a an expanding mandrel that holds the slitting disc. And it's, it's a way that this can shrink its size and move on the shaft and then grow in size again and lock to that shaft and it's a way to adjust slit width on the fly does that make sense yes makes sense and how it works is similar to a sprag clutch where you have this ring and then you have these radial undercuts in it but they're not concentric Um, they kind of get deeper as they go clockwise Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so when you rotate it counterclockwise it locks up Mm-hmm. The, the the roller bearings in this assembly get tight and cause this to expand. Mm-hmm. So since this ring uh, is flexing in nature, the, the size isn't super critical. Uh, what is critical is the wall thickness from this flexible section to the OD. That has to be very consistent from every segment. Uh, very high degree of concentricity to those two features. And um, so knowing that, the engineer who's reverse engineering that, he kind of came to me with this problem of how do we measure it? And um, we kind of ended on via assembly force. Mm. And so he built this pretty nice test rig, which uses all the parts, and uh, he has a nut to cause the expansion and that's driven via ball screw which i thought was a little fancy but he wanted to he wanted to isolate all as much much of the force to just the expansion force 
right. of just that kind of sprag clutch shape. And so he thought getting consistent force via the tightening from a ball screw would be a good way to understand that. And then on top of that, he had uh, the nicest torque wrench I've ever seen to to measure these loads. Um, this torque wrench had a carbon fiber handle, wow, and uh, or a shaft, and then like a full blown computer on it to capture data. <laughs> and uh, I guess it cost eight thousand dollars. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, and um, so that was kind of interesting, just watching. I thought it was a really smart way to not only reverse engineer and make check his assumptions on size, but also to arrive at the the size I needed to on the machine. Now, mm-hmm. once we kind of get a master, you know, we've decided on a size. I had some spares. I have my shallow diameter gauge, and mm-hmm. so I could use that first one as a master gauge and just keep them all within a couple tenths of that one. Mm-hmm. But I was I was really pleased with that way of doing things. I thought it uh, made a lot of sense. Versus uh, the, these rings are so thin walled that the slightest bit of holding them causes them to warm up and and move off size. Wow! And so I thought I thought this was the smart way of doing it. So when you uh, did this like sort of experimentation, did you end up making many? individual rings or did you just uh i guess guess the right size and see how much force it was and then go back and then do it again and so on he designed it to metric nominals like you know 160 millimeters and that was right right out of the gate so, oh wow um i i think that the the oem built it around metric nominals you know there wasn't mm-hmm. and he has an issue these crack a lot and he wanted to try a little nicer way of making them a little better tool steel a little better heat treat mm-hmm. and um and on top of all that i'm about half the cost of the european oem so wow he was he's excited to see how they hold up yeah that's that's always the really tricky thing about um i guess reverse engineering and trying to guess what the OEM did because I'm sure that the OEM that made those rings wouldn't be too keen on sharing the technical drawings. Uh, so getting it in the first go is like, oh, that's, you're cheering. <laughs> well, it, it functions. Um, the, 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 the jury's still out on whether or not what we built will be more long-term reliable. Um, yes, yeah. So we'll see. I kind of hope it is. It sounds like it sounds like it could be like a nice four to five figure a year reoccurring job for me. So I like little things like that. That once you kind of get the process down, they're pretty easy to replicate. And so, did you have any challenges with hitting the tolerance on these thin walls during machining? Uh, no. I kind of had came up with a process of holding these via fourteen clamps. Where there's no <laughs> clamping distortion. So I, I grind these from heat treat. I grind them flat. And then I chamfer the edges on the mill with a magnet. And so then all I have to do is hold them from the ID 
on that undercut segment and I can cut the mm-hmm. smallest diameter and major diameter and then while it's still held I add a second set of clamps and remove the first and then I machine where that first set of clamps was holding um, yes yeah very time-consuming way to make them I have like two and a half hours a piece in these after you know with the rough rough machining grinding then hard milling um Mm-hmm. But talking to some people, this this wasn't going to be a pleasant part no matter what. Like, it's round on a lot of features. Yeah. So your first instinct is, oh, it's a lathe part, turn it. But um, I, I don't I don't think that would have been very fun. Yeah, I, I remember you um, <laughs> mentioning, I won't say complaining, but mentioning that when you put it up on Instagram, people told you to get a lathe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I uh, I get that a lot. Um, you know, I make do with what I have, and uh, so anytime I do something around in the mill, people point out that it's probably quicker to turn it. And it's, well, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what would fit in your garage, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the issue. A drill sideways? How about that? One of those Dewalt drills hey. sideways. There you go. Yeah. So what was your precision problem? Uh, well, I had a spring that I was making and you can sort of see it on, on my Instagram as well. Um, and I posted it in the stories of the process that I made it in. But the spring that I designed ended up being very difficult to make as most things are that you don't really think about <laughs> DFM or something like that while designing. Um, but long story short, it's a spring that goes into the watch mechanism. That's very thin. Uh, it's kind of looks like a golf club or a, or a seven and the, um, the long part of the seven or the handle of the golf club is what is springy and it's fixed by the actual club of the golf club, if that makes sense. Um, and my first instinct was to mill it in one shot. Uh, thickness as well as the perimeter and then the counter ball so thankfully it's it's only a one uh, sided flat part so it's not too difficult to think of conceptually it's you know the counter bore is the only feature that differentiates between up and down or one side and the other uh, but the spring is uh 0.16 millimeters in thickness and 0. I want to say 0.7 millimeters tall. So it's uh, it would have been extremely difficult to hold properly. Um, well, I, I say properly like at all <laughs> in 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 the milling machine to cut it. And um, my first couple of attempts resulted in the part you know just flying off. So uh, I was sort of hesitant to do it in the wire EDM because um, it's, I guess, another whole step in the process. Uh, but also refixturing can be a problem. Um, but the real precision part of the problem was that I was forced into using the wire EDM, not just from the work holding standpoint, but the one part that I did get successfully off the milling machine, um, I heat treated and it warped so much that it it was so out of tolerance that it just wouldn't have made sense to to use or to um, try to like compensate for. So what I ended up doing was uh, doing the first operation, which is the hole drilling and the counter bore, 
um, and milling the stock to thickness in the kern, then heat treating the part, the whole um, like plate of parts really. There's, uh, I think I did nine parts in one. And then tempering obviously and putting that heat treated part in the wire EDM, clocking it up so it ran fairly flat and then wiring out the profile. So the one big benefit that you get obviously is that the wire EDM has no cutting force so you can hold it <laughs> super jankily to the point where it you know, doesn't actually make sense. Uh, but obviously the big benefit that you get is that the because the part is heat treated, you don't get any issues with the part moving on you too much during heat treat. So the, the spring comes out more or less done and it's just uh, like aesthetic finishing operations beyond that. So it all sounds really obvious now that I've said it, <laughs> but when you're approaching the problem, you know, from the like the draw the the drawing, it it can be a bit tricky to find out the exact process that gives you a part that satisfies every single um, every single criteria. Yeah, that's making spring prototypes is kind of been a consistent thing in my career and it, it's challenging um i've made a lot of spring clips or uh sir clips and then a lot of wave springs uh as a prototype mm -hmm. and to just make a few and arrive at something that meets the print is very very difficult to do first shot there's almost always some trial and error mm. Um, I mean, that's just kind of the unfortunate nature. And one of the knife parts I make is a 01 spring steel or tool steel spring. And we have similar problems with that is, you know, we mill it to final form and then heat treat. Uh, and does it stay still and heat treat is sometimes the issue. Mm. One other thing that... Um... I sort of learned during the journey of designing and making this part is about the materials that you use to make these springs. Um, and originally I thought I could get away with uh, using non-heat treated O1. And um, it it didn't work. And so I, was, I, was, I guess I was running under the assumption that heat treating doesn't change the modulus of elasticity. Um, I sort of knew that uh, a little bit from my uni days and also from what Robin has said in his, a couple of his videos. And so untreated um, uh, O1 to me was like, okay, it's just the same modulus of elasticity. It's going to work. But what I, the problem I was running into was that the part um, reached its yield point uh, before the functionality of the spring was completed. So in like more simple terms it bent too much and it plastically deformed so the spring force was good but the spring travel was not and so i heat treated the part mm. and the spring suddenly worked and so i was like oh heat treating the part changes the modulus of elasticity that was my first thought and so i i um chucked it up on instagram and robin sent me a really nice message saying oh actually you know what you're noticing is not the elasticity changing. It's not the K value of the spring. It's the yield point of the material shifting from heat treat. 
Um, and I thought that was really interesting because you can then make some pretty crazy springs um, that are very, very thin, really, because of, because of that property. But do you want to? <laughs> no, <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, so that was my precision problem this week. Now, Robin's a a good educator for the community. He's uh, pointed me correctly on a few things before, and uh, I'm always grateful uh, for his insights. And that's a wrap for episode seven of the Precision Microcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Adam and I ramble for an hour, and I'm, we both really hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, uh, we'd like for you to interact with us on social media give us a thumbs up or leave a review or even send us an email. But otherwise, you'll hear from us uh, in episode eight. No idea when that's going to be released, but we hope it's soon. Bye.